What do we say? How do you answer that difficult question that the atheists and the skeptics and the non-believers love to throw at the Christian church? How can a loving God allow suffering and death? How can you believe in God in a world where there is just immense, immeasurable suffering and sadness and misery and death? Whether it be far off, like an earthquake in Nepal where tens of thousands of people are killed, or whether it be painfully close to home, in Charleston, in a Christian church, in a prayer meeting, no less, where a very, very sick and hateful young man goes into the prayer meeting with a gun and takes the lives of nine of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, the misery and the suffering of the world are so great that for many, it is a hardship to believe. And maybe, just maybe, that hardship to belief is not out there in the atheists, but maybe it's in our own hearts at times. Have you not honestly asked the question, where's God? Where was God when my father died? Where was God when my mother died? Where was God when my husband or wife died? Or, or even, where was God when my child died? Where was God when the doctor came with that news, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do? Where is God amid what Shakespeare called the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? Haven't you asked that question? How can a loving God allow suffering and death? Now, we're going to wrestle with that question this morning. And I need to say up front that that's a question that has been perplexing to the greatest minds in human history. And I must tell you, the likes of me is not going to be able to give you a nice, simple, sweet, little philosophical answer. It's not going to happen. But I'm going to do what I can do, which is simply to tell a story. It's an old story. It's one of those stories of an ancient family, an ancient family that is thoroughly, thoroughly modern. It's the story of Joseph and his brothers. Now, it's a long story. It covers 13 chapters in the book of Genesis. To put that in perspective, the Gospel of Mark only has 16 chapters. So this is a long story. I can't get into all the details. It starts when Joseph is just a little guy at his young childhood and goes for 110 years until he dies in Egypt. It talks about his relations with his brothers, about his enslavement, about his being thrown in jail, about his rise to power in the Egyptian government. It covers all of that. So why are we dealing with this long, long story? Because it's really not 
a story about Joseph. It's a story about God. Not God as we normally think of God, as that incredible power that calls the universe into being, the God who can part the waters of the Red Sea, the God who Christ can walk on water or even be raised from the dead. No, in the Joseph story, God works in very ordinary, common ways. In the lives of ordinary people, amid jealousies and hatred and tension and family bickering, in suffering and misery, God is at work. So let's take a closer look at the Joseph story, and we'll see what God is up to. Joseph was the 11th of 12 brothers, the sons of Jacob, or Israel. You remember Jacob two weeks ago. Pastor Ron talked about him. The grabber, remember that? The grabber whose name is changed from Jacob to Israel, the one who contends with God, the one who becomes the father of the people of Israel. Well, he has these 12 sons, and the 11th is Joseph. Joseph is the most loved. I wish I could say that Joseph was a good little boy, but he wasn't. He was a miserable, rotten, spoiled brat. He was the family tattletale. Whenever any of the older brothers did something wrong, oh, here comes little Joseph running to tell Dad. You may have had some folks in your family like that. And while the other brothers wore the simple homespun cloth of the shepherd, Joseph had a special coat. Now, it's interesting that in the old King James Version, it's called a coat of many colors. In the newer translations, it's called a coat with long sleeves. Well, whatever, it's a special coat. The other brothers didn't get one. And Joseph liked to parade around and show off his beautiful coat. But what really broke the deal was a dream. Joseph had a dream that he and his brothers were out in the field, and they were cutting grain, and they were binding the grain, putting it together in sheaves. And the sheaves of grain of the brothers all bowed down before Joseph's sheaf of grain. Well, that was kind of a crazy dream, but then Joseph went on to tell the brothers what it meant. Listen, guys, I want to tell you what this means. And remember, this is the little spoiled brat speaking. You... You are going to bow down before me. Well, that did it. The brothers decided they would kill him. They threw him in a deep pit. But then some common sense or, or maybe some greed took hold, and they decided to sell him into slavery. Now remember, it's a long story. Bear with me. Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt. He becomes a slave in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. He's a high-up power in the military. And there's a bit of a scandalous story that now follows about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. 
Now, I'm going to let you read that. I'm not going to go into that. But suffice it to say, Joseph ends up in jail. He's thrown into prison, but he still has this ability to interpret dreams. And he interprets dreams, and they always turn out exactly the way he said they would. And the word reaches Pharaoh. And he calls Joseph in before him because Pharaoh had a dream. He had a dream that there were seven sleek, strong, beautiful cows. The kind of cows that would win a blue ribbon at the county fair. And then, in the dream, there are seven emaciated, skinny, pathetic little cows who eat up the big cows and the strong ones. And Pharaoh says, what is going on? Am I cracking up? What is this all about? And Joseph says, Pharaoh, let me tell you what this means. There are going to be seven years of plentiful harvest and productivity. But then there are going to be seven years of poor harvest and famine. So Pharaoh, here's what we need to do. We need to build some big storehouses and store lots of grain in the good years so that when the bad years come, we'll have food to eat. Pharaoh said, sounds like a plan. And he did it. And that's exactly what happened. Seven good years, they stored the grain. In the seven years of famine, there was food for all of the Egyptians. Well, now as it turns out, that famine spread up into Israel. And here's old man Jacob, old man Israel, He and his sons are facing starvation. And the sons come down to Egypt. And they come before Joseph and they bow down before him, just like Joseph said they would. They don't recognize him. Joseph knows who they are. And there's a very moving scene in the Bible where Joseph has to leave the room. The tears are streaming down his face. He doesn't want his brothers to see him crying There's no bitterness, there's no anger, there's no hatred, there's only love and compassion. And so the story ends in a wonderful way. There is reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Joseph and his dad are reunited. It's a beautiful story. And there is food for all, for the Egyptians, but for the people of Israel as well. It's a great story. It's a wonderful story. They all lived happily ever after. But now, wait a minute. Every good story has a punchline, doesn't it? And there's a punchline in this story, a very, very important punchline. Dottie read it to us in the passage this morning. I want you to listen again. Listen to what Joseph says to his brothers. Come down there to get food, and here's what Joseph says. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You hear that? You meant it for evil. You threw me in a pit. You sold me into slavery. But God meant it for good. God was at work for good. God was at work to bring good out of the evil. 
In the letter to the Romans, Paul goes so far as to say, we know, we know that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Man, that's a statement, isn't it? All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Hear it carefully. Paul does not say all things are good. Oh, there's plenty of stuff that is not good. The murder of those nine souls in the church in Charleston, that is not good. And there are things in your lives that have taken place that are not good. But in faith, we say that all things work together for good because God is the Lord of creation. God is in charge of the universe. God is the Lord of us, of all people, of all times, of all places. The whole historic process is in the hands of God. To God belong the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God will reign. God will bring good out of evil. The cross of Christ is the guarantee of that. That was not good when Christ suffered and died and bled. But God brings it about for good. That's what this old, old story is all about. Now, I need to bring this sermon to a close. I know you're thinking I've already missed two or three good opportunities to do that. (laughs) But I want to go back to the original question, if you can remember what it was. How can a loving God allow suffering and death? I want to reword that question just a tiny bit. How can a loving God not give us an escape from suffering and death? The answer is God does give us an escape from suffering and even from death. It just takes faith to understand that. So be it. Amen.